The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts forever know His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Oh, the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ, the rock, is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In this episode, and by God's grace, episodes to follow, we revisit a popular topic wherein we continue to look at various apparent, supposed Bible contradictions presented by atheists, skeptics, and humanists. As before, we will examine them against what the Bible says in context, according to proper exegesis, using the languages in question, correct grammar, the culture of the day, and most importantly, the prism of spiritual discernment given by God to those who truly desire to understand his revelation of himself and his relationship to man. As a prelude to answering any apparent Bible contradictions. If you, as a listener, have not done so already, listening to the introductory episode regarding questions about contradictions will be an indispensable prologue to fully understanding 
or more importantly, answering any question or apparent contradiction which exists. Therefore, I will have to rely from this point forward on the listener to faithfully adopt the biblical posture of the Berean Bible student who is willing and able to do their own respective homework in order to avoid the pitfalls inherent from failing to do so. In the episodes to date, we have examined and answered 46 questions regarding supposed Bible contradictions from our old friend, Mr. Ash, the atheist, skeptic, and humanist. Beginning in episode 16, we began the double jeopardy phase of really serious Bible contradictions which constitute a fundamental attack on the Christian message. Thus far, Mr. Ash has provided us with what he believes to be five laser-guided bombs which he imagines have destroyed the Christian message. Having answered and debunked said questions, Mr. Ash is left with five melted snowballs which failed to ever get off the ground. But despite how scary and difficult it may be, we will continue to help Mr. Ash with his various questions regarding the veracity and consistency of God's Word, the Bible. With this in mind, let us consider addressing the following questions about apparent Bible contradictions put forth by Mr. Ash. For our next randomly selected serious apparent contradiction, Mr. Ash asks, Does God allow harm to Christians? In order to construct this supposed contradiction, Mr. Ash cites the following verses. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 21, quote, No harm overtakes the righteous, but the wicked have their fill of trouble, unquote. Psalm chapter 91, verse 5 through 10, quote, Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked, because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling." Unquote. Mr. Ash then compares these verses to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, which says, quote, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice! insomuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, 
ye may be glad also with exceeding joy, unquote. Further, Mr. Ashton points out the history that Christians have died. <gasps> oh, St. Paul got beheaded. The majority of Jesus' disciples were martyred. Tens of thousands of Christians have been persecuted, tormented, tortured, imprisoned, and ultimately otherwise killed. Well, Christians have been shot and murdered while in church praying during church services. Because of this, Mr. Ash reasons that the Bible is an error. God neglected to protect everyone from bad things. God lied. Therefore, God does not exist. Here, Mr. Ash's argument commits an error of confusing correlation and causation, false cause and false equivocation. In addition, Mr. Ash has failed to pay attention to the original languages as well as the context and overall well-known biblical theology. To begin with, when we look at Proverbs chapter 12, verse 21, which says, quote, No harm overtakes the righteous, but the wicked have their fill of trouble, unquote. The Hebrew word translated as quote-unquote harm is aven. The Hebrew word aven means quote trouble, wickedness, sorrow, or iniquity, unquote. It means quote to pant, hence to exert oneself, usually in vain, to come to naught, unquote. So, the word quote-unquote harm is a poor translation choice because it in fact erroneously conjures the idea that nothing bad or negative will ever happen to those who are quote-unquote righteous. Following this, we have Psalms chapter 91, verses 5 through 6, quote, Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked, because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling." Unquote. Now, in this case, the Hebrew word translated, quote-unquote, evil, does mean, quote, bad, disagreeable, malignant, or evil, unquote. Further, the word, quote, unquote, plague does mean, quote, stroke, plague, disease, or mark, unquote. 
Does this mean that Mr. Ash is finally right and that bad or evil things happen to Christians and that God has failed? Absolutely not. Let's recall that whether we want to say that Psalm chapter 91 was written by David or any other human, whoever wrote it, could truthfully say that at some time in their life that they experienced what they and others could define as bad, unpleasant, or disagreeable things happening. Uh, last I checked, if David wrote Psalm 91, he was mocked by his brothers because he was the youngest. Saul persecuted David and attempted to kill him. David fell into serious temptation and had his youngest son die. Further, David succumbed to death like every other human. In fact, arguably, David wrote Psalm 91 because of one or more of the bad circumstances that he was facing. Even when David was alive, he himself was well aware that Adam and Eve, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and many others before him who were accepted quote-unquote righteous Jews had both suffered and died. There was never any expectation by anyone in the Bible that because they knew God or were Christians that they were going to be immune to the pains of this life due to sin. Everyone who is truly a Christian or who knows God understands that suffering, bad things, evil are a part of this life. Why? Well, if Mr. Ash will recall, God himself warned that if mankind made the decision to take our trust and faith off of God and to instead try to do things apart from God, according to our own strength and wisdom, we would break fellowship with God and be under the curse of sin. With sin comes suffering, persecution, bad things, plague, and ultimately death. All of these things remain with man until God creates a new heaven and a new earth where Satan's sin and the flesh are destroyed. In Psalm 91 and many passages like it, David and other people of faith are simply exercising faith and trust in God, praying that despite these common consequences of the curse of sin, that God will sustain and keep them despite them in their present or upcoming situation. If, 
For whatever reason, things happen by which some definitions seem evil or bad, like Job. Those who do have faith in God can say, as did Job in Job chapter 13, verse 15, quote, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him but I will maintain my own ways before him." Unquote. This common knowledge and reminder gets voiced, as already noted by Mr. Ash in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 and 13, which says, quote, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice in so much as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy." Unquote. Mr. Ash's paradigm dilemma is that he is under the circular reasoning error that the presence of quote-unquote evil, i.e. bad things happening to supposedly quote-unquote good or quote-unquote innocent people, means that either God has lost control or there is no God because if he were in control or if God did exist, then Mr. Ash would be perfectly happy and he would not be able to find any reason to complain. Now, a full debate and rebuttal on the problem of evil would take too much time here, but for those interested, I would direct them to the two-part episode entitled The Problem of Evil. Suffice it to say that according to Romans 3, there is none that is quote-unquote good, righteous, or innocent based upon our own efforts according to God's perspective. All have sinned. It is also worth remembering that simply because we as finite humans cannot understand why things happen which appear to be bad, does it mean that there isn't a reason? Secondly, with God, the child of God has assurance and trust that suffering, evil, bad things, etc. are temporary, and there is always an ultimate reason and purpose which provide meaning. Whereas, according to Mr. Ash's worldview, the only reason for evil and suffering is some random cause and effect with no assurance, no trust, no ultimate meaning to anything. Now, the fact that we all do have common persecution, tribulation, and suffering due to sin is no more evident than when Jesus himself, who said to all his disciples in John chapter 16 verses 32 and 33 quote, Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, 
every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world." Unquote. So in the end, there is no contradiction here. Mr. Ash has simply once again conflated and confused his own world and life view and attempted to force it into the Bible, which has a totally different world and life view. Anytime you do this type of eisegetical approach to the Bible, you are going to come away with an unwarranted contradiction or error by default. As the late computer program Wilf Hay once said, Giggo, garbage in, garbage out. In this case, Mr. Ash has dumped several trucks full of garbage before us and pass off the smell as perfume. For our next fundamental attack on the Christian message and apparent contradiction, Mr. Ash asks, How can Jesus, who is God, question his own plan? In order to concoct this supposed contradiction, Mr. Ash reads Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, which reads, quote, And he, speaking of Jesus, went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt, unquote. Mr. Ash then uses his understanding of Christian theology to form his problem. In this case, Mr. Ash correctly realizes that God is triune. Father, Son, i.e. Jesus, and Holy Spirit. Secondly, Mr. Ash again correctly realizes that since Jesus was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, that God had planned the sacrifice of himself as the Son as a perfect plan to reconcile his elect. Given that Jesus, the Son, is God, Mr. Ash again correctly recognizes that the Son, i.e. Jesus, would have been fully aware as deity of the necessity and perfection of his, this plan. Finally, Mr. Ashton questions why in the Garden of Gethsemane would Jesus then have supposed second thoughts and request that the plan be changed if in fact he is God? Well, the answer is quite simple. Jesus is both 100% God and 100% man. As Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 reminds us, speaking of Jesus and his humanity, quote, 
For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin, unquote. Mr. Ash and others sometimes get confused and believe that Jesus was 50% man and 50% God. But, in reality, Jesus was 100% both. Thus, as a human, Jesus was hungry, thirsty, tired, and tempted. Jesus felt pain, sorrow, agony, suffering, sadness, happiness, and many other emotions. As we read Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, we see both Jesus' humanity and his deity shine through. On the one hand, Jesus the man does not look forward to the humiliation, the torture, the pain, and the separation from God the Father. On the other hand, as God, Jesus still knows that this is God the Father's perfect and sovereign will since Jesus is 100% God. It is impossible that he should do any less than what that which is in his nature as God to do. While we, as finite and sinful humans, have limitations regarding a complete and comprehensive understanding of the economic and ontological aspects of the Godhead, our constraints and limitations are not an argument which undermine the reality. So here, Mr. Ash has composed a categorical fallacy regarding who Jesus is. We could, for example, just as easily say that when Jesus wept when his friend Lazarus died, that this proves that Jesus was not fully God. The reason being that Jesus was God and God would have known that Lazarus was going to die and that he as God was going to bring Lazarus back from the dead. Therefore, Jesus should not have been shocked at the death, neither should he be sad because he knows what he can do and will do. But the point is that in addition to being 100% God, Jesus is also 100% human. As a human, Jesus had human compassion and emotion, which in the moment is appropriate and natural to demonstrate grief over the loss of a close friend. In the end, Jesus' intimate first-hand experience of human frailty, emotion, and temptation is what, in addition to being fully God, gives him the infinite ability to comfort and relate to us, his creation. As Isaiah chapter 53 verses 4 and 5 state, quote, Surely he hath borne our griefs 
and carried our sorrows, yet did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed." Unquote. So, once again, we do not have a contradiction. We do not have a fundamental assault on the Christian message. Jesus' humanity is actually a predicted and planned attribute, which rather than being a liability, instead, again, proves the veracity of God and his word. For our next apparent contradiction and fundamental attack on the Christian message, Mr. Ash asks, Why didn't Jesus' disciples expect Jesus' crucifixion, death, and resurrection? In order to form this question, Mr. Ash reads the following. Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19, quote, And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way, and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and the third day shall he rise again." Unquote. Also, Mark chapter 8, verse 31, quote, And he, speaking of Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again." Unquote. From these, Mr. Ash reasons that there is a contradiction, or minimally that the story does not make sense. The reason is that Mr. Ash believes that since Jesus had given what amounts to a prophetical spoiler alert of his future arrest, trial, crucifixion, death, and resurrection, the disciples should have been prepared. Instead, we find the disciples grieving over Jesus' death and the women coming to the tomb, which they should know is empty. And Mr. Ash wants to know, why wasn't there a crowd sitting in bleachers in front of Jesus' tomb to watch the up-and-coming miracle of his resurrection? Doesn't this contradiction or lack of story continuity prove that the Bible is faulty? Well, the answer is no. The disciples' behavior, actions, reactions, doubt, and disbelief all are in keeping with what the entire Bible relates to us throughout. 
Mr. Ash may find it shocking, but mankind has been exercising a lack of faith and belief since Genesis 3. The Bible is replete with reminders that it is our nature to doubt, to lack faith, to go astray, and to fall short of God's glory. The miracle is when by God's grace, God opens our heart, and when we begin to have faith. Jesus' disciples were men and women who were beset with the same nature of sin as everyone else. He did not choose them because they were perfect, sinless, or special. He chose them according to his own sovereign grace in order that he, by his grace, would make them special. As in every other case, God's act of conforming his chosen elect into his image is not an event, but rather a process called sanctification. It is never complete until we stand before him free of the fetters of our flesh. So, yes, Jesus' disciples heard Jesus' prediction regarding his future. The problem was that they did not connect the dots. They did not fully understand the entire plan of God, and like many Jews in the first century, thought that the Messiah would deliver them here and now from the Romans and would restore a geopolitical kingdom for the Jews like that of Solomon. As we read the Bible, and in particular the Gospel accounts, we find repeated admonishments and warning by Jesus, who observes that despite his teaching and instructing those around him, that those who are listening are not hearing. For example, Matthew chapter 13, verses 13 through 16, quote, Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they, seeing, see not, and hearing, they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive." For this people's heart is wax gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear." Also, John chapter 8, verse 43, quote, Why do ye not understand my speech, even because ye cannot hear my word, unquote? And also John chapter 8, verse 47, quote, He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God, unquote. 
And finally, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, quote, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned, unquote. These and other verses demonstrate at least two incontrovertible axioms. One, all men contend with the old nature of sin and rebellion. The greater the sin and rebellion, the greater the inability to comprehend the things of God. Two, only the grace of God can empower us with a new nature to contend with the old. The greater the sanctification and maturity which we have by God's grace, the greater the understanding and discernment of the things of God. So in Mr. Ash's scenario, we see these axiomatic truths being borne out in the lives of each of the disciples. They all went from their respective situation of sin and rebellion, and gradually, as they grew in the knowledge, trust, and faith of God's Word and their relationship with Christ, they developed greater sanctification and maturity. In particular, it was not until the disciples received the gift of the Holy Spirit after Jesus' resurrection that a remembrance and fuller understanding of the entirety of God's Word and what Jesus had said became clearer to them. We also see the corresponding truth of the above axioms being borne out by the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day as well as Mr. Ash in this day. Both, as in the case of this question, demonstrate that the very reason that they do not understand God or His Word is because they have not received a new nature, the Spirit of God, and discernment. At least in the case of Jesus' disciples then and now, we all once suffered from the lack of discernment, failure to hear, listen and obey, brought about by our old sin and rebellion. Mr. Ash's problem is that he continues to abide in his old nature of sin and rebellion, and thus, not only does he not understand, he consciously or unconsciously no longer has the sincere desire to understand. So, once again, the fact that we have an honest account by the disciples that they did not immediately understand all of what Jesus said or did in the moment does not present a contradiction or lack of continuity in God's word. Instead, it relates to us the truth and reality where we, including Mr. Ash, all begin. The only difference is that Mr. Ash has never progressed beyond this due to his own ongoing rebellion, whereas Jesus' disciples, then and now, ultimately, by God's grace, are drawn to repentance and have a sincere desire to understand the things of God, as well as his indwelling Holy Spirit, which gives us discernment, 
to correctly do so. Consequently, once again, using a proper biblical world and life view, there are no contradictions here, no fundamental assaults which destroy the Christian message. There is only an inability or unwillingness for Mr. Ash to understand what the basic message of the gospel is, along with the unregenerate mind of Mr. Ash, who must, at all costs, deny God in order to justify himself. In all, to date, in this series, we have in each case serious questions posed by various individuals who hold themselves out to be scholars, critical thinkers, intellectuals, and the like, who collectively fall under the pseudonym of Mr. Ash. These and others are questions which individually and collectively serve as the basis by which we are intended to come to the conclusion that the Bible is not God's word, but rather a collection of myths and fables only to be believed by the simple-minded and the gullible. However, in truth, these 49 and a myriad remaining others are nothing more than apparent contradictions which exist and remain largely, if not exclusively, due in fact to Mr. Ash's inability or unwillingness to do his research, coupled with his unwillingness to open his mind and heart to God and his word. This concludes this episode. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com that's p-a-s-t-o-r underscore y-e-s-h-u-a at yahoo.com thank you for listening It's my